The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. So if you would, open your copies of God's Word to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, found in the Old Testament, after Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Keep turning, you get to the prophets, and you'll see Isaiah. This morning, we'll be working through verses 15 to 22, Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 to 22. As you're turning there in the Bible, I think oftentimes we we stay away, maybe in our daily Bible reading plan from books, especially in this genre, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It can be a little difficult to to understand, a little difficult to follow. Um, sometimes you don't know if they're talking about the future, talking about the present time, talking about the past, talking to Israel, talking to Judah. Is it God that's talking? Is it a prophet that's talking? When is this actually going to take place? So I'd recommend a good study Bible if you're in that camp as you're reading through. Hopefully this morning as we work through here, uh, we'll be able to see exactly what uh, God is speaking to Isaiah about. I just want to give you just a brief background to kind of set the context. We're, we're jumping into the middle of chapter 30, which is also in the middle of a subsection of the book as well. And so kind of parachuting in just to hopefully round off some square edges there. Um, God is speaking to the nation of Judah at this time uh, through the prophet Isaiah. So the whole nation of Israel existed. He had 10 tribes to the north and he had two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, which were to the south. Uh, At this time, the uh, nation of Judah uh, was going to come under attack by the Assyrian army. They hadn't made it there yet, but Isaiah is prophesying to them. Um, This section is often called, in chapter 30, they said you're right in the middle of a subsection of the book. So 28 to to 35, you have what's called the woes, the book of woes, if you will. It's intended to be a warning to the nation of Israel, the the two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, also for their disobedience to God. So the warning here in chapter 30 is specifically, do not put your trust in Egypt because Israel or Judah wanted Egypt to help them fight the battle as the Assyrians were coming. So during this time, Hezekiah was king. It was very early in his rulership as well. There's a good chance that as Hezekiah is here, he's just trying to figure out what's going on. First couple years of his rulership, he's got his advisors who are telling him, hey, the Assyrian army is coming. Our army is very weak. What are we going to do? And he says, well, Egypt is strong. Why not ask them for help? Isaiah comes along, speaks for God, tells Hezekiah, don't trust in any other nation to come to your aid. Trust in God. It's unfortunate, and perhaps you can relate, but the troubles which are going to come upon Hezekiah are completely self-inflicted. He and the nation were warned, they were told to do what was right, to choose God, but instead they chose Israel. Interestingly enough, Judah seeks to find their hope and salvation in a nation which enslaved them instead of going to the God who saved them. We could say that this nation was choosing sin in order to get out of the hard place that they believed they were in. We had a question at our elder Q&A a while back that asked, how can you use the Old Testament into our current lives? You read through this, a cursory reading, you would say, okay, I'm I'm not Hezekiah, I'm not a king over the nation of Judah, the Assyrian army's not coming to me, 
I'm not trying to, to battle this, this invading force. How is it that I can use this? And hopefully we'll be able to answer those questions as we go through. And I think it's helpful in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, now these things, speaking of the past events, happened to them, and specifically Israel, as an example. And they were written, he says, for our instruction. He also wrote in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in early times was written for our instruction. He says, so that, or for the purpose of, through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So you could say, why do we have the Old Testament today? It's so we wouldn't make the same mistakes that were made in the past. We also have them so that we would find hope in our current time. So you could say they're there simply to increase our faith and to warn us of wrong choices. As I said, this context is certainly different than, than where we, we are today. But just like Hezekiah, you and I, we have to make daily choices to either follow God's instruction that's clearly given or to follow the thing that we can see and the thing that we think to be the best. And today we can look around and think we need to do something in order to make sure that we are well taken care of. I would also suspect that there are people listening who would say, God is simply not doing enough, and I just need to pick up the slack in the areas that God isn't working so hard. A good question to start with is, I read through this, I thought to myself, a good question would be, what do you do when the pressure is on? We all have times when the clock's ticking, things are looking gloomy all around, and we just feel like we have to make that decision, and you look around and you tell yourself, and maybe some of your closest friends are telling you as well, something has to be done. What are you going to do? Where do you go when a decision must be made and your prayers are seemingly unanswered? Do you have this picture of God that's very callous, this picture of God that's very uncaring? You believe he stays silent and He's actually inviting you to make a decision on your own. What do you do when you make that decision and the wheels completely fall off? Is the first thought that goes through your head, obviously God has abandoned me. Do you believe that God is just waiting for you to mess up so that he can finally punish you the way that he desires to punish you? You know, just like Hezekiah in our text this morning, we can have a very wrong view of who God is. When we have a wrong view of God, we make choices which seem to have good intentions, but they end up with really bad consequences. I believe when we have a wrong view of God, we actually guarantee ourselves that we're going to make wrong choices. So if you read with me chapter 30, read along with me, chapter 30, verses 15 through 22, you can start in verse 15. It says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And you will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five. Until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop. And as a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
How blessed are all those who long for him. People in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold, you will scatter them as in an impure thing and say to them, be gone. So in the text this morning, as we just work through these verses, we see three reasons to trust God when we can't see the path forward. Three reasons to trust God when we can't see the path forward. And this is where Hezekiah was sitting. He had to trust God when he couldn't see what was going forward. So the first reason we have to trust God is found in verses 15 through 17. And it may seem simplistic, but it's no less true. His way is always right. His way is always right. In these first three verses, we have this contrast that Isaiah presents. Verse 15, we have the way of faith. God lays out what simple faith looks like. Then in verses 16 and 17, we read what Hezekiah and Judah desired and how they responded. So first of all, in verse 15, God uses word pairs. I like this. He uses three word pairs to really drive home this point that he's making towards Hezekiah. First of all, we see these two words that go together, repentance and quietness. When one is repentant, they're no longer trying to defend their actions. They're no longer looking for a way out, but submitting themselves to the will of God. You could say that they are just agreeing with what God has said to be true. But this was not the case with Hezekiah. He was not quiet. He was not agreeing with the Lord. In fact, he was trying to find a way out of the predicament on his own. He looked around and he thought the best thing he could do was team up with Egypt, put his hope in that army, and not in God. And I like what Spurgeon said about being quiet and repentant. Very simple. He said, this is ceasing from all self-effort and looking to the Lord with a quiet faith. So not only is it repentance and quietness that go together, but these next words, rest and trust, go together. I probably don't have to explain to you, but when you truly trust something or you truly trust someone is when you really have rest. Listen to what the Lord says to Hezekiah. If you look in chapter 30, just a couple verses before that, in verses 12 and 13, the Lord says, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile, And have relied on them. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. He did not trust God to do what God said that he would do. Hezekiah trusted in what he could see and what other people were telling him. His trust was in his own wisdom And by using his own wisdom, his trust then fell into his oppressors. Do you see what God says there in verse 13, 12 and 13? You have put your trust in oppression and guile. 
He could not find a way out. Resting didn't seem right. Who can rest when a decision has to be made? So he did what he thought was best, well, the best option at the time. His choice did not lead him to rest, as we just read. His choice led him to further turmoil. And then finally, you have these two words, saved and strength, which are paired together. And the word saved here has kind of a dual meaning. He is talking about being saved from the incoming enemies. Like there's a physical aspect to it, the destruction which was coming, but it's also a picture of spiritual salvation when it's teamed up with repentance and rest. Hezekiah's strength would not come because he found the right way out. Hezekiah's strength would come because he rested in God. Since he was not at rest, and he did not believe the Lord's strength would save him, he looked to a country who he thought was stronger than the Assyrians, and he decided to put his hope and rest in them. Essentially, you could say he took his eyes off the promises and the person of God and put them where he thought the real power was. I think if we were honest looking at these three word pairs, these six words, we would have to admit that many times our first reaction or perhaps our natural inclination in our own hearts is to bring about some sort of objection to the Lord. When we don't see what we should do, when we don't agree with what the Lord's trying to do, we start to vocalize our own worries as if God is taking an inventory of our opinions and changing his mind based upon it. It's easier to agree than to submit to what the Lord has said, or it's easier to argue, excuse me, it's easier to argue with the Lord than what it is to simply submit to what he has said. Rather, what we should do is quietly rest in the salvation of the Lord and finding our strength by simply placing our faith in him. But that's not what happened here with Hezekiah. It's not what happened here with the country of Judah. Even after the Lord had shown them all of this, what do we read in verse 15? But they were not willing, or but you were not willing. So what is it that Hezekiah desired from Egypt? From the onset of this, you would think he wants these men to come, this army to come and fight alongside them so they could defeat the Assyrian army. But he says they wanted swift horses. And as you read through this, there's kind of a plot twist, at least in my mind. At first glance, as I said, the armies are coming, Assyria is coming. He's looking at the Israeli army he's saying, man, we're not much, but Egypt is strong. We're going to get Egypt's swift horses to come over here. But why did they want them? What does Isaiah say? So they can actually run away. It's so they can flee the battle, not even fight alongside the Egyptians, but they wanted the Egyptian horses so they could take off. They wanted Egypt to come and fight the Assyrians, but they wanted to get out of Dodge. You know, at this stage, we have to ask ourselves, as we've been in afflictions and trials and hard times, has this ever been your heart? Not truly that the Lord would strengthen you for the battle that's coming, but that by your own wisdom, you could find a way to flee. The Puritan Thomas Brooks in his little book called Humility, speaking of the Old Testament, uh, Daniel and some other saints and the apostles, he has these couple sentences that are very helpful. He says, speaking of these men that went through hard times in the scriptures, he said, they were not anxious about getting out of affliction, but studious about how to glorify God in their afflictions. 
They were not willing to be anything, or excuse me, they were willing to be anything and to bear anything so that in everything God might be glorified. In other words, or simply put, the way through your affliction is through it. So what does the Lord tell them in verse 16? He tells them, you are going to flee. And he says it with an exclamation mark. Therefore, you shall flee. You want the horses you want to run? You get to flee. Not only that, but those who are going to be pursuing after you, they're going to have swift horses as well. In other words, you can run from your affliction, but it's going to get you. Notice in verse 17, the words, a thousand Israelites will flee when one man threatens them. Yeah, you're going to run, you're going to have swift horses, but you're going to be absolutely humiliated. You chose to put your hope in these horses, great, get on them and run. And when one man withstands or stands up to a thousand of you, you're going to run away scared. This is what the Lord is going to allow because they sought the help of the world. And he ends this section by declaring that this nation is going to be an example for everybody to see. Most of your Bibles probably say flag, right? You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag. When we read the word flag, it's not speaking of a flag like in a golf course, a little flag. It's not even speaking of a, you know, maybe the American flag that you would hang up at your house. The word flag here is also used for a mast on a ship or a beacon that's going out for everyone to be able to see. Essentially, God's saying there's going to be a massive sign at the highest place so that all people can see how futile it is to trust in God or to trust in the world and not in God. The word signal here has the same meaning. This example of Israel is basically a banner which has been placed at the highest point for all the world to see. And this is actually reflective of what Paul wrote both in 1 Corinthians and Romans, that the Old Testament is there for our example. See, we're not that different from Hezekiah. We may not be in the same context, but we still have the same nature. This was about 2,700 years ago, and I think we can identify much of what takes place in these three verses. Have you ever been in a spot like this before? You don't see any way out. It seems the Lord is quiet. Time is slipping away. Perhaps instead of patiently waiting for the Lord, relying on his faithfulness, you decide to do something because, after all, something must be done. You look around and take in all the information and you make a decision based upon your own wisdom and the things that you can reason. But then what happens when, like Hezekiah, we actually choose the wrong path? Even having the right intentions. Do you see God, once again, as that policeman in the sky waiting just to smack you on the head? Is it all over for Hezekiah, for us, when we put our trust in what we can see and not in the promises of God? The question always looms in our mind when we commit the sin of unbelief and decide to go our own way, what's God going to do with me? That's where I have to ask, do you know your great God and Savior? Some people resort to self-punishment as if Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not enough. They must take their punishment even further because of their sin. Others go down into their own minds, trying to make a way out of the sin. They just put themselves in, hoping the same pride that brought them down into the pit would be useful to bring them out of the pit. 
Others just give up altogether thinking their spiritual life is over. They've not kept up their end of the salvation bargain that they themselves have made up in their own mind, so it's time to to leave. When we find ourselves in these situations, I find it very helpful that the very first step we can take is to stop looking at ourselves and to start looking to God. But you see, we need a right view of God, and that's what we're going to have in these next verses. So in verses 15 through 17, we, we see the first reason that we trust God is his way is always right. Then in verse 18, we could say this is our, our hinge verse. And our second reason in verse 18 is that his grace will not run out. Verse 18, his grace will not run out. Hezekiah had sinned. He brought Judah into sin. He put their trust in what they could see and plan The problem was no one had sought the Lord on what they should do. No one considered that the Lord was going to take care of them if all they did was patiently wait. They knew the Assyrian forces were coming to them. They knew their own forces would not hold up. So they decided we're going to pair or team ourselves up with the nation of Egypt. What was God's response? Maybe in your own mind you would say God's just going to crush them. God's going to be done with them. They chose once again not to listen to God. They chose once again to put their trust in another nation time and time and time again. Where does your own mind go when you realize you haven't followed that path that God had set before you? And I think this first word in verse 18 is so important to us. In most of your Bibles, I hope it says the word therefore. It's actually connecting two things. And in this very specific instance, the thing that I love it connects is Hezekiah's rebellious decision with God's amazing grace. Interestingly, to get a bit technical, this word therefore is used under 200 times in the Old Testament. There's many words they have for the word therefore, or a few words they have for the word therefore. But the thing that this one specifically uses is it expresses something which takes place in the future. And this specific one is paired with verbs or with action words that have some sort of hope attached to them. And you can see that in the text. The word therefore is connected to the verb longs, if you have the NAS. This means that God was giving his people a promise about himself that they were then able to look forward to. It's all connected together as God's showing his heart for his rebellious people. He's not leaving them in their sinful decision, but telling them, even though you decided to sin, and even though you decided to put your trust in Egypt, I'm not going anywhere. This doesn't mean that Judah or Hezekiah doesn't face consequence for their actions. It doesn't mean that their sin just goes unpunished, because to have sin unpunished would mean that God's not just. But it does mean it's not the end of their story. Even though Judah was trusting in Egypt, God was still longing for them. This word long here, this verb that's used, actually used twice in verse 18. And it's interesting in its usage. One of them shows God's heart towards his people. And then it gives a description of God's blessed people. In both instances, the word carries with it the idea of waiting for something or waiting for someone. In the case of the first you speaking of God, God is waiting to be gracious to them 
when they return to him. And I would say this is the difference between a father's love that God has towards his people and someone that is just dealing out punishment to anyone who wrongs them. What you didn't read was God saying, okay, here's a set of instructions that you need to do in order to get back into my good graces. You didn't read that because it's not there. There's no such orders because if they were, Hezekiah and Judah wouldn't be able to do them anyway. Think about it this way. If there were no actions and there were no works which brought you into God's saving grace, it would be unfair or even unrighteous to say now you have to do works to stay in God's saving grace. So in verse 18, what do we call this action of God towards his people? Well, we call it grace. God desires to show his favor. He desires to show his grace to his people. It wasn't that God wasn't willing. It was that his people did not want it. And it's worth pointing out that even though his people didn't want it, God was still promising it to them in the future. So just because they chose sin did not negate the grace that God had for them. That's the God whom we serve. And I think a great illustration of this is a common, common story that we read in the New Testament that I'm sure most of you could even recite. Found in Luke 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son takes his father's wealth and he goes and spends it on worldly pleasures. He realizes when he hits the lowest point in his life that he needs to go back to his father. He was ready to renounce his sonship and simply become a hired servant. In his best wisdom, this was the best punishment for him. And he thought, if I could have this punishment, then I can get back into my father's house. What happened when he came home is we know the story. His father ran to see him. What does the son do? The son confesses his sin and then he pronounces his own punishment. Luke 15, 21, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, which is repentance. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He said, here's my punishment, dad. I'm not your son. I just want to be your slave. His father replied, not even paying attention to what his son said. He said, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on and bring a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has, and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is grace. We think that we must punish ourselves enough to get back into God's good grace just like the prodigal son did. Yet, there's God simply waiting for us to come back to him so that he can lavish his grace upon us. And if that wasn't enough, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, the next word that he uses, not just gracious, but then he says he waits on high with compassion. He wants to be compassionate towards them. Very similar to the word grace, but it carries with it more of a tender affection. In some cases, maybe your Bible translates it merciful or even to show pity. So you could say God not only wanted to show them his abundant grace, but he also wanted to show his great love towards them. He was not harboring hatred or discontentment towards his people. While they chose to go in a different direction, while they chose to put their trust in what they could see, God wanted them to know that they had not completely fallen away. God's grace and his love is not going to run out on those who are his people. 
Oftentimes, we equate discipline with disliking someone. We've gotten into this habit that when we do something wrong and somebody comes and tells us or we have our own consequences befall us, then that person must not like us anymore. We've become very self-centered. Not so with God. If God allows us to go through the consequences of our actions, it doesn't mean that he suddenly is against us. There are consequences for our actions, but what he wants us to know is that he hasn't left us. We are still children, and a consequence of our action is not losing that familiar relationship with God. So you could say God was not moving away from the nation. The nation had chose to move away from him. And as they moved away, God wanted to remind them that he was still there on high. He was not going anywhere, even though for a season they may believe that all hope was lost. And the same can be said for us when we fall into sin, when we fall into various trials. God has not left us, but he desires us in those moments to actually move closer to him. As an encouragement, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, and he goes on. There is nothing, Paul concludes, that can separate us from that love of Christ. We all have spiritually dry seasons, or we have times where our faith is stretched. We have times when we can't see the path forward, but that doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. It means we must live by what we know to be true about God. While our feelings and our thoughts are yelling something else to us, we have to trust that God's word is our guide. He then says in verse 18, the Lord is a God of justice. And these are things we often pit against each other. We pit grace and justice against each other. And on the surface we say, you can't have both. These are opposite. To have one, the other one you can't have. We think if someone commits a crime, they either get mercy or they get justice. They simply just can't have both. The nation was going to experience the punishment for putting their faith in Egypt and for not putting their faith in the living God. There are consequences for their action, but once again, God's reminding them this is not the end of the story. God's so great and so wonderful that he shows both mercy and justice at the same time. And for us, as we're living in a time when Christ has been crucified, Paul says in Romans 3.26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, how is it that God can do this? Well, Paul says, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Christ for the salvation of your soul, your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for already. You don't have a free pass. It was paid for on the back of Christ on the cross. And now by grace, we live by faith in Christ who has saved us. But God just didn't stop there. He also has given us the righteousness of Christ so that we can actually stand now in, the, in being justified before God in the righteousness of Christ. God is completely just because of Christ, not because of our actions. So how should our hearts be as we're going through an experience like this? Well, we should be like those who are patiently waiting for the Lord to work on our behalf. This, as the scripture says, is where the true blessing is found from God. 
If our desire is to walk in the way of the Lord, then we need to wait for him and not try to figure things out on our own. And maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you've sinned. Maybe you've fallen into temptation. Maybe you've made some decisions. And you're sitting here and you say, I just don't know what to do. Well, I can tell you, you start by coming back to your heavenly Father. You run to him. You allow his grace, his compassion, his justice to be that soothing balm upon your downcast soul. Don't be anxiously trying to figure out how to get out of the mess you got yourself into. We can run to Christ and we can rest in his grace. So in verses 15 to 17, we saw our first reason was that God's way is always right. We can trust him. Verse 18, our second reason is his grace will not run out. God's grace does not run out. It's it's not a, a bucket that's full And when you use up your allotted amount, there's nothing left. God's grace is as infinite as God. And now in verses 19 to 22, we have our third reason to trust God, is that his promises will never fail. And I would venture to say this is nothing new. You probably heard this before. Of course God's grace doesn't run out. Of course God's promises will never fail. Intellectually, you could probably quote even verses But experientially or practically, are you actually living this way? Or do you take this head knowledge, set it aside when hard times come, and you decide to do things because you're fully capable of doing them without God? This section here is an interesting section. It's unique in our study as it talks about a coming time in history, in the future, that the original recipients Isaiah is writing to have not even experienced yet. Therefore, we could easily say, we ourselves have not experienced yet. While there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation, I would certainly assert our own pride and stubbornness can take us away from the blessing of the Lord. And that's what we're going to see here. These three promises God gives the nation in verse 19 through 22, when they actually come and humble themselves before God. The first promise found there in verse 19 is that he will be gracious to them. So this promise aligns that we just read in verse 18. And I really like it because you read in verse 18, he says, therefore the the Lord longs to be gracious. So there's an expectancy. He's saying, I want to do this for you. They may say, yeah, you want to, but are you actually going to do it? And he says, oh, I'm glad you asked. I am going to do this to you at a specific time. So not only does he long for it, but he says, I'm promising you I'm going to be gracious. Well, when is it that God is gracious to these people? It says when he hears the sound of their cry. Now, I would say at this point in history is Hezekiah is king. Hezekiah is crying out. The problem is it's just not to the Lord. He and the nation of Judah were crying out to Egypt for help. They wanted Egypt's military. They wanted their horses They didn't want God. Once again, they were putting their faith in the things that they could see, not faith in God. There's this difference between a cry of humility and a cry which comes from pride. And I think if we were all honest, we would know the difference in our own hearts. Much like in our lives, we look to something or someone else and we cry out to help from it. Now, it may not be a literal, vocal 
cry coming out of our mouth, but we can also look to something else for help while simultaneously crying to God that he would use the thing that we want to help us to help us. We can put our trust in a future pay raise or maybe we can get a better interest rate on a loan. Lord, if you would just give me this, then I would be able to do this. We may think that changing our jobs or getting married is where we need to put our hope as we wait for something. Telling God, here's the best thing for me. Now, Lord, I'm crying out to you to use that best thing for me in my life so that I can get better. Worrying, agonizing over something, the Bible says many times it is actually worthless. But humbly trusting in God to do what he promised to do is the path that the Bible says the Lord will bless. So not only does he promise to be gracious to them, we also see the second promise found in verses 20 to 21, and this deals with the compassion of the Lord found in verse 18. He said the Lord gave these people bread of privation. If you're not familiar with that word, it's like adversity. He also says he gave them water of oppression. Why would God give them bread of adversity and water of oppression? Well, God brought hard times down upon them so that they would recognize they were in prosperous times. When they were in prosperous times, they turned their back on the Lord. God did allow the Assyrians ultimately to come in and sack many of the cities found in Judah, not ultimately taking them over, at this moment anyway. Took over 200,000 people into captivity. And it's not hard to connect this in our own lives, right? When the grass is green, sky is blue, extra money in their pockets, a couple extra vacations a year, everything seems to be good. How soon we forget the God of the universe. As has been said from this pulpit many times, we need trials in our life to make sure that we place our total sufficiency in Christ. We would know and we would also admit and, and confess that this life is not all there is, but do we also confess that God uses this life to conform us more into the image of Christ? And the best way that God can do that in our life is by using trials in our life. In other words, we must die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ. Now the rest in verses 20 and 21 is very interesting. He says that your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. And depending on the Bible you have, once again, you may have that word he in verse 20, he, but it's italicized. When there's a word italicized in the Bible, it means it wasn't there in the original writing. It's not heresy when they put it in there. That's why it's in italics. But it's just supplied so that it makes the reading a little bit easier for you. Sometimes it's just put there because those who were translating it said, I think a he goes here. Because it just helps. The verb is masculine or a noun is masculine. And so the subject would be a, a he at that stage. Now there are a few ways which have been proposed to translate and understand this passage. And we're certainly not going to go deep into the weeds with, with this teacher I think it's important to understand what God is saying here to the nation. So first of all, what does he say? Plainly, they are going to see him. He's no longer going to hide himself. 
So we take prophecy to be true. Right? It's going to happen. Secondly, what does he say? He's going to be talking directly to them so that when they fall away from God's path, he will speak to them and they'll get back on God's path. So you could say there's going to come a time in history or in the future when the nation is going to have a personal teacher whom they've never seen at this point, but now they're going to know. But in this time, there's also going to be the ability to not walk on the path of God, which is synonymous or saying the same thing as having the ability to sin. So you have a time where there's a personal relationship with this teacher, and there's going to be a sin that's taking place. And I believe as we read through this, Isaiah is describing that time as the millennial kingdom. This is that thousand years that take place between the end of the seven years of tribulation and before the final state or the eternal state of heaven. Say, so, well, how can you, how do you get there? You get there because Christ is going to be actively ruling and reigning over the earth during this thousand years. And he's going to be directing, along with the saints who, who are with him, what's taking place. And there's still going to be sin in the millennial kingdom. So that means that people can walk away from the path of God. So how do we know he's not talking about heaven? It's very easy. There's no sin in heaven. You can't walk away from God's path in heaven. We're done with that. There's no more. So this can't be the eternal state. This has to be a time before the eternal state. Well, then there also has to be a time where Israel knows their teacher, otherwise known as their Messiah. So does Israel know their Messiah today? No. But when we look at other verses, we can see that there's going to come a time when Israel does recognize their Messiah, and that's during the Millennial Kingdom. Now, to be sure, Isaiah is not writing this in order to have a proof text for the Millennial Kingdom by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it's just helpful to point out here, this hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen at a future time. Then we have our last promise in verse 22. The people will desire purity. And this goes along with the word justice, right? And you can see what they do. They desire purity. Defile their, gra their graven images overlaid with silver, their molten images plated with gold. So in other words, they are completely destroying their idols that they've been holding on to. This hasn't happened yet. But you can see the orders of, uh, order of events here. I find it fascinating. Adversity comes upon the people. They cry out to the Lord. God is gracious to them. He's going to personally teach them to walk in the righteous ways of the Lord. He's going to lovingly correct them as they get off the path. As the people put their trust in the Lord and they see that he's good, they completely destroy their idols and scatter them everywhere. And I really like this word scatter. It's not just like, you know, you're putting grass seed out in your lawn. It's scatter as if you want nobody to ever find these things again. They want nothing to do with idols and they want to put their full trust in the true and living God. As I said, this is not happening now, nor can it happen in heaven. So it's going to take place between the two times or during the thousand-year reign. But are we today living like this in our own life? Do we cry out to the Lord in times that we just can't work things out? Or do we easily go back and walk in the wisdom and get off the, get off the right path See, we have the word of the Lord, we have our Bibles, so we too can walk in obedience to it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 
All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction. And here's the key phrase, for training in righteousness. Well, why do we need that? Well, Paul tells Timothy the purpose, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That training in righteousness that he says is the purpose of the word of God relates well with verse 21 in our passage. This is the way, walk in it. This is what the word of God does for us. The Bible is there to show us when we veer off the path that God has and then lovingly corrects us to get back onto that path so that we may walk in righteousness and put ourselves in a, in a position that God then is able to bless us because we're desiring his glory and his holiness. God brings distress into our life so that we'll run to him, not so that we can sit down and try to figure it all out. As one pastor said, God simply waits for you to wait for him. So when the pressure's on, decision has to be made. Do you trust in the Lord or do you try to make something happen in your own strength? Are you going to walk by faith knowing that while you certainly don't have it all figured out and neither does the person sitting to the right or left of you, you're going to walk by faith. God was faithful to the people of Israel and I think it's so important to point out that God's faithfulness didn't end when they were faithless. God said, I'm still here waiting for you to cry out to come back to me. And we too have these exact same promises from God. Even though we sin and we think that we know the best way forward, we pronounce our own punishments and think that now by doing that we can stand right with God. God is so gracious and God is so faithful that he's waiting for you to simply cry out to him so that he can lavish that unending grace upon you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, we thank you that we have a compassionate Father, uh, Lord, who is just waiting for us to come, to repent, Lord, and to seek your guidance. So, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, uh, for all that you will do for us. And we pray, God, that you would just continue to bless our service here this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.